I'm Robin Amlo of IBS Intelligence, and you're listening to the IBSI Views podcast. Joining me now is Jason Blick, Director and Chief Executive Officer of Equibank, based in the Cayman Islands. Let's start, Jason, by taking a look at the crypto and capital markets as they currently stand. What are the trends that you're seeing? Well, obviously, we've seen a significant pullback in BTC over the course of the last 10 days. As more institutions are getting involved in BTC, there is obviously the opportunity for significant movement, particularly when companies pull away from it. So we saw the recent examination from Tesla regarding energy consumption, which resulted in in them ceasing to accept BTC for car purchases. That said, so whilst BTC has had some bearish activity over the course of the last week or so, Ethereum continues to rocket ahead, especially with its utilization in DeFi. As a bank, we're very interested in DeFi as an industry, and we've seen it increase 5,000% market cap over the last 12 months. And approximately, well, more ETH is held in the DeFi community than it is actually on exchanges right now. So that's definitively an area to keep a very close eye on. DeFi definitively an area. How appropriate. (laughs) Yes, yes. How do you see decentralized finance evolving? Who's going to use it? Well, that's a phenomenal question. I think it's fair to say that mature banks are now looking at this sector and questioning whether or not it's an existential threat to their existence. The truth is that trust in banks over the course of the last 15 years continues to decline. Even though 2008 was 13 years ago, it's still fresh on people's memories and and the poor way in which many centralized organizations dealt with the collapse remains a concern today. So people have increased confidence in dealing amongst themselves in a P2P environment. So DeFi has met that need, that need to act 24 by 7, not rely on a centralized entity. In many instances, receiving financial offers for loans, etc., in sub-30 minutes anywhere in the world. So I think it would be foolish for banks and, and large financial services institutions not to consider DeFi a genuine threat to their long-term sustainability and profitability. So absorbing elements of DeFi is going to be a major area for big banks over the course of the next five years. Well, let's talk about your bank in particular, Equibank. This is a digital-only offering, yes? Yes, uh, Equibank was formed in 2015 with one specific objective, to become the world's first global digital bank. So we've been in existence for about six years now. We meet the needs of clients in over 180 countries around the world. And yes, we are digital only. As a digital only bank, you're also offering a service to other institutions to white label the banking proposition. Yes, we've been involved in banking for a combined 200 years plus. And we were very conscious that it's very much a one-way street. We all bank with banks, but it's questionable as to how much we get out of that relationship as consumers or users. So we tried to change it a little bit by working with select clients and enabling them to leverage our bank license 
our technology, our correspondence, etc., and enable them to go to market as a white-label financial institution and offer their clients bank accounts, credit cards, loans, wealth management, etc. So we are predominantly offering that into the financial services market, but we're also offering that to technology companies, really enabling them to leverage their existing client base and offer new lines of revenue, new services to really capture uh, an existing ecosystem that they may have. Well, I was going to ask who were you targeting as the kind of people who would use this, but I think you've answered that question. You say other financial institutions that are not banks. Absolutely. Plus, those that have large consumer bases or client bases within their existing industry, for example, an airline or a large technology company, and in one case, a, a significant telco All of these organizations are trying to find new and innovative ways to drive their own balance sheets. And obviously, offering financial services to a captive environment is a great way to do it. And also, it's that is going to impact on established banks because you're going to be eating their lunch, presumably. We politely like to think so, Robin, (laughs) yes. And it's absolutely right. I mean, the existing traditional banks out there are very much stuck with the legacy technology, their monolithic operating structures. So they're facing a level of disconnect, which is perhaps no longer sustainable in an environment that is that is globalized in nature so we can no longer sort of rest on these pedals of responsibility we genuinely have to go out and innovate in the way in which we we work with clients in any industry and the bundling of services the ability to be able to be a technology supermarket having financial services available is making a really big difference to some of our technology clients well i am going to question you a little bit further on that with what I am seeing in among traditional banks and indeed among neo banks with the creation of open banking and digital platforms isn't that going to be tough competition for you? Well, the existing open banking and particularly EU legislation is significantly further ahead than many other jurisdictions. So we are doing some great things in the UK and the EU if you will, to break the monopoly of large banks. And that's been very much the case for nearly 10 years. But that level of innovation isn't necessarily reflected in other jurisdictions. So we're able to offer our banking as a service proposition to 180 countries around the world. So in some senses, clients or potential partners have a regulatory arbitrage opportunity. So if they're, for example, in in Asia, without uh, some of the distinct advantages of open banking in the EU, we are pretty much their only option to, to bundle banking and financial services in with their existing offerings. How complicated is it for you to be able to fit within these 180 different jurisdictions, how complicated is the regulatory environment for what you're doing? Because obviously, you're a regulated bank in a certain place, even if that certain place is the ether because you're a digital only bank, but you're you're operating under a certain set of regulations. How complicated is it to white label it in geography A, geography B, geography C, and so on? 
Well, we have uh, six lines of business that we offer uniformly to 180 countries. So one of our advantages is we're not geo-specific. So most big banks have different offerings depending on the jurisdiction that they're in, and they often compete with one another, even in within, within the same entity. We don't have that problem. We deliver six lines of business uniformly to 180 countries uh, around the world. So we feel that gives us a competitive advantage in that regard. In respect to ongoing compliance and regulatory matters. We often joke, Robin, that uh, banking is basically just a compliance organization that happens to do a tiny bit of banking. Uh, So I think it's fair to say that nearly 50% of our ongoing activity and, and costs actually are in respect to legal and compliance. And that's just the reality of banking across the world today. That is the world you live in. To come back to your own activities in banking then, who are your target customers? Who, who is it that, for its own business, Equibank is seeking to engage with? There are numerous digital banks that are out there now, most of which are geo-specific. You have some great banks in the UK, in the EU, and in the US that cater for predominantly the retail market in those environments. Equibank was formed, as I mentioned, in 2015 to really target high net worths and corporate clients. So we're very much focused on business accounts and business clients in pretty much every continent across the entire world, who so far have been somewhat forgotten with the digital banking revolution. We've been focused on the retail client, and the numbers are quite significant in that regard. But the amount you have in deposit with uh, retail digital banks is often quite quite small. Uh, So by focusing on corporates and corporates' needs across a series of geographies, we've managed to carve out quite a niche. I must say, and I'd be interested in your take on this, the more I see of digital retail banking yes it's wonderful it's great people tell me how how impressive it all is and some of it really is truly impressive and the numbers speak for themselves in two ways lots of people are signing on for it that's one number that speaks for itself the other number that speaks for itself is that very few people are making any money out of doing it well, they have yet to find a, a route to profitability. There are a couple of banks that are focused on lending, especially in the SME market, with a digital platform, and they're doing quite nicely. But the, the vast majority of retail digital banks continue to lose money, which isn't surprising because the average deposit in a retail digital bank is less than £300. So it's quite difficult to leverage deposits of £300 to make a big difference on one's balance sheet. And that's another reason that we focused on the corporate environment. Their needs are more significant, the deposits are are more voluminous in nature, and you really can cross-sell into a series of other product lines with a corporate client in ways that perhaps you can't with a traditional retail. But do you have a credit card with a vibrant colour scheme? This is probably the question that many people are wondering the answer to. Well, I'm a banker, so I'm perhaps not the best person to question on (laughs) On vibrant colours, but uh, we have our card is black, green, and grey. Robin, it's it's tasteful. <laughs> Jason Blick, director and CEO of EcoBank. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Robin.